first of all, if you're new here tonight or you're part of, of somebody's family and you're visiting, we just want to say welcome to our Living Stones family. Um, we're kind of wrapping up, just so you all know, we're, we're wrapping up a really great series for about the last 10 weeks or so on shame. And, um, and how many of you figured out that when you approach the scriptures with a certain emphasis or a certain theme or a certain lens, you see scripture in a whole new light. And, and I just want to tell you, as we come into Good Friday tonight and we focus on the cross and then Sunday morning, of course, Resurrection Sunday, um, and you realize that shame comes because of guilt and guilt comes because of sin. How many of you know then the cross really deals with our shame? And wouldn't you expect that Jesus would be the recipient of a massive demonic attack that would go after the very things that shame goes after? Shame tries to dissolve our relationship with each other, and it tries to destroy our relationship with God. And so the cross is the focal point of this massive assault, demonic assault on Jesus with the same strategies we've been talking about, how the devil tries to take us out. And here's the cool thing, all right? We're coming into Sunday. Tonight's going to be really good, um, a great word of encouragement. But Sunday, we're talking about how Christ's goal on the cross was to take our shame and to trade it in for unbridled joy forever. Like this is good. Sometimes, Sometimes people think, they get sin-focused. They say, well, Jesus died for our sins. That's true. Of course he did. But why did he die for our sins? Not just to pay the penalty and say, okay, I paid the penalty. You guys are good to go. He died for our sins so he could bring us into intimate relationship with himself forever. And, ready for this? So that we could have joy in our relationships on planet earth and not be marked by shame and guilt and all the stuff that most human relationships are are tarnished with. So how about this? I'm just giving you guys a little pastoral heart gush here, all right? How about we really put this shame thing into practice, not shaming, but getting rid of it, that is, and we really listen tonight to the message of the cross and how Jesus dealt with it, and how about this? Let's be committed to joy in our relationships with each other. So like if you don't see me smiling and you're not smiling back at me and we're not like having a party, we're doing something wrong. And I don't want, I don't want to be in the heaven remedial class for joy. Like, oh, all you church people that couldn't get it together on earth, we have a remedial class for you in heaven. I, I want Jesus to go, you guys are living stoners, aren't you? You're, you're, you're in the honors class of joy. Yeah. I could tell. I could tell you guys worked at it. Because how many of you know joy and church are not two words that generally are associated in word association games? Church. What I hear most people say, boring, hypocrite. I mean, you know, that's what most of the world says. But I, here's, my, here's my goal in life. When people say church and they think of living stones, they go, joy. Crazy, loving people. Authentic, real free from shame, radiant faces. They love so well. Are you guys with me? That, that's the honors. That's the heaven honors class on relationships. And I want to show you on Sunday how that's exactly what God has in store. We serve a happy God because he's large and he's in charge. We serve a happy Savior and we serve a happy Holy Spirit. In fact, he brings us the joy of the Father. We're getting ready to go into a crazy awesome series. I can't, I'm just going to whet your appetite. It's called Hosting the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and we're going to learn how to roll the red carpet out for the third member of the Godhead, 
whose whole passion in life is to magnify Jesus and do crazy, awesome stuff in our midst. So y'all ready for that? Yes. All right. Come on, you're ready. <laughs> All right, I, I am too. I'm excited. I'm excited. So anyway, thanks for coming out. Let me just say this too. I love, you know, someone was commenting on all the children in here. How many know you're always only one generation away from losing the gospel in your, co- in your country or in any country? You're one generation away. I don't worry that that's going to happen because we have incredible promises from the Lord that our, our seed for a thousand generations would enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the gospel. But how many know that doesn't happen by accident? You have to be intentional. And this is what we call Holy Week. And tonight is a night where we need to stop what we're doing. I can't think of anything that one would be doing that would be more important than what we're doing right here and now. Because if there's no cross and there's no sacrifice, then we're miserable, we're dead. And if there's no resurrection, of course, we're really dead. Because the resurrection vindicated that everything Jesus did on Friday night was real and valid and true. And Sunday's coming. And so we call this Good Friday because we know the end of the story. It's not Bad Friday. So even tonight, you know, it, it, it would be inappropriate for us to focus on the agony of the cross and on all the suffering that Jesus went through at the hands of evil men and, and demons from hell. It would be unfitting for us to have a, uh, a too lighthearted uh, of an approach because, I mean, you know, this is serious. Uh, you don't see all that Christ went through and not be stunned by, number one, human depravity. But how many of you know we're also stunned by the fact that our sin really does have a cost, a massive cost. And so holiness really matters and purity of heart and loving Jesus, it matters. But I just want to encourage you that our, our somber, reflective mode also always has an, a little pinch of, of uh, hope in it. Because we're not like living as a people at the time of Christ's crucifixion that were devastated by watching what happened and, and ran away in grief and sorrow and sadness and, and hopelessness. Because we know Sunday's coming. Come on, that's why we're here. Sunday's coming. So even when we look at the agony of the cross, there's a, there's a wellspring of hope because we know that it doesn't end there. Amen? And so tonight we're going to look at some of the bad Friday. We're going to especially look at just the demonic attack on Jesus with shame. And let me just share something. I told you, Jesus is our example in everything. Don't you appreciate that? I I don't want to follow a leader that doesn't practice what he or she preaches. And it would be incredibly horrific in the religious arena if your Savior said to do one thing and then didn't do it himself. So how many of you know, when we're talking about how shame debilitates us and keeps us from loving each other and from loving the Lord, um, Jesus embraced shame. How did he destroy shame? By embracing it. By doing the same thing we've been preaching, by being vulnerable, by, by exposing himself to the devil's worst shot. And by facing our shame, it wasn't his shame, it's our shame. But how many of you know the devil, he's not real smart. Uh, he's strategic, but he's not real smart. He uses the same strategies over and over again. So we shouldn't be surprised that the devil would use the same strategy he uses to, to cancel me out with shame, that he used the same strategy on the Son of God. And that's what I want to look at here tonight. In fact, this message, I like this message title, Shame's Shameful Death. Jesus killed shame 
by embracing shame, which was an absolute mystery and an awesome thing. So we're going to pause tonight to, to focus on the cross. And, and I, I want to, it's important to understand not only that Jesus died for us, but how Jesus died for us. Now, we have people in, our, in life that, that die what's called a hero's death, right? We might have some veterans out here. There's always stories of bravery, chivalry, where somebody you know, jumps on a grenade and gives their life up to save their squadron or whatever. Uh, those are heroic deaths. Jesus did not die a heroic death. We now in Christ can look back at the cross and say Jesus is a hero. But how many of you know there wasn't a single person alive that celebrated Jesus as a hero when he was crucified? Just the opposite. In fact, Isaiah says he was a man of, of sorrows and despised and rejected by men. So everybody that looked upon Christ, and if you read the gospel accounts, you don't find anybody standing at the foot of the cross praising the Lord for his greatness. You find a lot of people mocking and jeering and making fun and casting shame on him. Um, and that was pretty much the crowd, all right? So, so Jesus did not die a hero's death. He died rejected and despised. He died a death filled with great shame and weakness. And he died without any human glory attached to his death. And in fact, Paul writes this. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul said simply, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God. And look at how he describes his death. He, he died a criminal's death on a cross. Let's just ponder that for a moment. The sinless Lamb of God, beautiful in every way, his character radiant, never a thought, word, or deed that was wicked in his entire life. The most gloriously beautiful human being that ever lived died like a vile, barbarian criminal because even the Romans would not crucify their own citizens. You had to be a barbarian. You had to be a pagan. You had to be somebody that committed the most heinous crime to die that death. In fact, every Hebrew knew that, it, that to die a death on the cross was to be cursed by God, to be an accursed thing. So the Jews had problems with this crucified Messiah. Certainly the Greeks and Romans had no conception of how that could be God Almighty hanging on a cross. But that's exactly what God did. He allowed his son to be killed like a vile, wicked criminal. And we ponder what that means tonight, because that's part of the shame that Jesus embraced for us. Um, the cross, as you all know, was more than just an instrument of capital punishment. It was a public symbol of indecency and shame. If you wanted to kill somebody, here's my point, you could do it a lot more efficiently than the cross. How many of you know the, the demonic inspiration behind crucifixion? was so that you could extend the agony as long as possible and so that you could make a spectacle of the person and so that you could not just destroy their body, but you could destroy everything human about them. I mean, you know, there's, there's been nothing ever as evil conceived in the heart of wicked fallen people than the cross. So if God wanted to kill his son, there were more efficient ways to do it. Stoning, beheading, there were all kinds of ways you could kill a person. Jesus specifically was chosen to die on a cross for a reason. And I believe it has to do with him taking upon himself the full measure of our sin and our guilt and our shame, which is what we've been talking about for the last 10 weeks. So what made crucifixion so humiliating? Let me give you a couple of things. First of all, it was always public. It was in a very visible, prominent location, maybe at the crossroads or at a, in a theater or on high ground. Of course, Jesus was crucified on Mount Calvary. In other words, you crucified people not in obscurity, 
but you crucified people where they would be open to public ridicule and mockery and shame and where everybody could see it and where no one could miss it. And there was a reason why they didn't want you to miss it because they didn't want you, whatever, whatever that person on that cross did, you wanted to make sure you did not do that ever. So there was a fear element, certainly, but there was a massive shame element. Here's the other side of this. Jesus, while you never see pictures like this, and for good reason, because it would be obscene, but Jesus and victims on the cross were crucified naked. Part of the shame was being completely exposed for everybody to walk by and mock you and to make fun of you and ridicule you. And I just want to say this, you know, so much of our shame is attached to other people's sin against us. And I can't think of anything more embarrassing than nudity or being exposed publicly to other people. Uh, these are shameful things. And we're also talking here about the, the shame that's attached to any time that there's sexual abuse. And I've heard people trying to work through very difficult situations, maybe it's rape or something like that, where they, they struggle with how in the world could God allow this to happen and where was God when this was going on? Can I just tell you something that's very, very profound to me? Jesus embraced every single kind of sin and wickedness that could be done, including being sexually molested. What else is it when you're stripped naked, beaten beyond recognition, and nailed to a cross in front of, and made a spectacle in front of everyone? In fact, it's interesting, when you look at what a, uh, a first century Jewish man would wear, his outfit consisted of five basic items. He had shoes, of course. He had a turban to cover his head. He had a belt around his waist. He had a loincloth, or what we would consider under undergarment, and he had an outer tunic. That's what Jesus would have been wearing uh, at the time that he lived uh, in his culture. The Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 35, after they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes. In other words, he was stripped naked before nailed to a cross, and the, the, the soldiers had the audacity to sit at his feet there as he suspended in agony and gamble over his clothing. So these are indications. Again, you can also go to Psalm 22, which is an amazing messianic prophecy. And I, I highlight this. We're not talking about apologetics tonight. But how many of you know the crucifixion of Jesus is a historical event? It's not some fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's a historical event. And when you read the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the cross, they're absolutely stunning, and they point to the fact that God wrote the Scriptures, that God is the Lord of human history, that the cross was real, and that what Jesus fulfilled on the cross confirms the fact that He's the Messiah because we have over 300 Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus. One of them is Psalm 22. Now, let me just highlight this just for a second. In fact, I would encourage you all to read Psalm 22 sometime over this weekend. But it gives a detailed description of crucifixion 600 years before crucifixion was ever invented. Now just pause here for a moment. Psalm 22 paints the picture of what Jesus is experiencing in his brutal you know, beating and flogging, leading all the way up to having, the Bible says in Psalm 22, that his hands and feet were pierced, referring again to crucifixion. How does the writer even know about this when it hasn't even been invented yet? And yet this confirms again, this and, a, and 
299 other passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Uh, These are strong, powerful, rational witnesses that Jesus is who he says he was. How many of you also know the first Adam was created in the glory of God? In the Garden of Eden, what were we clothed in? We were clothed in the glory of the Lord. What happened because of Adam's sin? He lost the glory. What was the first thing Adam and Eve noticed? Uh, We're naked, right? They ran to get fig leaves. What happened? Sin led to guilt, and guilt led to shame, and shame led to covering. And how many of you know that's, that's where we've been ever since? But I want you to see something. Jesus Christ willingly took our shame, our guilt, our sin upon his naked, beaten, broken body. In other words, he was clothed in our nakedness, ready for this, so that his righteousness could now become what we're clothed in. He is the second Adam, all right? He came to restore what the first Adam lost. And now what do we get when we bow our knee to Christ and we receive what he did on the cross for us? We get the righteousness of God in Christ. We take his purity and his sinless perfection and we're clothed in a robe of righteousness because of what Jesus did for us. So can you see why he literally goes and takes on the first Adam's sin in every way? so that he could give to us new clothing, clothed in his own righteousness and perfection. What a deal. So we got all of this going on here. We got a very public thing, and we have a very humiliating, shameful, naked crucifixion. And here's what I want you to see, which is so important. Jesus died not only for the guilt of our sins, but for the shame of our sins. And I just want to review here, because I want you to notice, in light of the crucifixion, the message from the devil. Remember we said shame has two basic messages, and you you should be familiar with this because we're human beings and this is what we live in. Shame says, number one, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're defective. You're broken. You're not enough. Something's the matter with you. You'll never, you'll never measure up to what, what you need to be. The second message from shame is you're not valuable. You have no worth. Think about the cross and think about those two messages. The devil and every demon in hell is screaming in the ear and in the spirit of Jesus, you're not enough and you're not valuable. And I'm going to show you and highlight how he does this. Remember shame's goal. We talked about this as well. Shame's goal is to hijack the mission of God in our lives. And the devil is at work to hijack the mission of Jesus for salvation on the cross. He's also trying to hijack our identity because if we can get off track and we forget who we are, then we'll forget what we're called to do and we will fail in our assignment as human beings. And Jesus is dealing with the same thing in his his role as Messiah and Savior. So let's take a look at what Jesus went through on the cross right now, especially as it relates to shame. First point I want to make tonight is that shame attacks Jesus' identity as a prophet. Now remember, we talk in the Bible, this is some good theology here. There's three offices Jesus held, right? He, He is a prophet, he is a priest, he is a king. He embodies all three. When you look through the Old Testament, you saw some people who were prophets, some people who were priests, some people who were kings. Uh, David is probably one of the few exceptions who actually moved in all three of those anointings to some degree. He was an Old Testament picture of Jesus. But I mean, you know, Jesus is a prophet, uh, the prophet of all prophets. He is a priest of all priests, and he is the king of all kings. What does Satan go after on the cross as Jesus is, again, beaten beyond recognition and nailed there and suspended on that cross? What do you think he goes after? Well, let's take a look. First of all, he goes after Jesus' identity as a prophet. Now, what do prophets do? Prophets reveal the heart 
and the will of God. How many think Jesus did a pretty good job of revealing the heart and the will of God? In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, Hebrews, earlier in the chapter in Hebrews, it says God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. So the Old Testament prophets would always begin their prophesying with this phrase, thus saith the Lord, because they weren't speaking on their own behalf. They were mouthpieces of God Almighty. Now, Jesus is the living word. He is the logos. He is the word made flesh. He is the heart and will of God in bodily form. You cannot find a prophet more prophetic, a prophet with a capital P, stronger than Jesus. What do you think the devil goes after when he's hanging on the cross? He starts attacking whether or not Jesus is really who he said he was. Let me highlight this. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, this is the priests and the members of the Sanhedrin. It says, they began to spit in Jesus' face. Now, let me just pause here. Can you think of a situation when it would ever be appropriate for me as a pastor, a man of God, to spit in somebody else's face? Can, it, can anybody think of where that would, that would represent the heart of the Father? In fact, spitting in a person's face is an is incredible form of indignity and shame. We don't teach our kids to go spit in people's faces. And certainly men of God and women of God should not be spitting in anybody's face. Here you have the religious leaders coming to Christ and spitting in his face. Now, how I many know we might have a problem here? They need to go back to Theology 101 and, and uh, Sunday School because that's not how religious leaders act. But it gets worse it says they um, spit in Jesus' face and they began to beat him with their fists. And some of them slapped him. And I want you to notice, again, some of the marks of hell. You're going to see this over and over again. Satan is a mocker. And I, and I just want to say this. One thing that should not be found among God's people is mockery. It is wicked. It has the accent of hell. People who mock the Lord, mock the church, mock Christians, make fun of righteousness, mock holiness, I'm telling you, that is demonic. And you're going to see mocking all throughout Christ's situation when he's hanging there on the cross. So here they come, the religious leaders, and they mock him, and they punch him, they pummel him. And look at what they say to him. Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? Whack. Who was it? Smack him again. Punch him in the face. Who was it? Who hit you? If you're a prophet, prophesy to us. Mockery, 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 mockery. Each time they're punching God in human flesh. And they're blinded to it. But notice that notice the nature of the mocking. Prophesy to us. You say you're the Messiah. You say you speak on God's behalf prophesied to us and Jesus just takes it I mean you know sometimes just taking it is an incredibly righteous thing to do and to commit yourself into the hands of God Almighty so Jesus takes it even though he's the prophet of all prophets he is the word made flesh 
Look at what else. Shame begins to attack Jesus' identity as a priest. What is the role of a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and the people. That's what priests do. They offer sacrifices in the Old Testament, sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. Why? So that the people could be in right standing with God. They could have relationship with God. Let me ask you again. Was Jesus a legitimate priest? He's the high priest of our profession. He, he is the most incredible shepherd of our souls. Now let me ask you this. Did Jesus not only offered the sacrifice for our sins, he was the sacrifice for our sins. God Almighty was the one offering the lamb. Jesus was the lamb himself. What, is there a more perfect mediator between God and man than Jesus Christ? You'll never find one. In fact, that's what Paul said when he was writing Timothy. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. So hanging on the cross, suspended literally between heaven and earth, is the mediator. He is the one, he is the God-man, who is taking on the sin of humanity and making us holy and righteous in God's sight. And can I just say this? Good Friday forever settles the fact that there are no competitors for mediation between sinful human beings and God Almighty. There's no other way than Jesus Christ. There's no other path. There's no other religion. And I know this is terribly politically incorrect, but I think the cross earns Jesus a place in human history that no other human being could ever uh, take, take that place. He is the high priest of our profession. He is the mediator, the means by which we have relationship with God Almighty. And I want you to look at the attack on his identity once again. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals, these vile, guilty men who were crucified, for God only knows what they committed, but I'll tell you this, it was evil to deserve crucifixion. These wicked men, demonized men, are being used by the devil himself to slander and attack Christ, even while he's suspended on the cross. Now, I brought this up earlier. I don't know about you, but when I'm hurting, like splitting migraine, or I have 104 fever, or I got the flu bug and my body's aching all over. How many of you know it's really hard to be spiritual when you feel that way? Am I talking to the right crowd? Like you're not laying there with a splitting headache where you can hardly open your eyes and you're so sensitive to light, and you go, honey, I'm just going to go have an amazing quiet time. I'm going to try to read through the whole Bible. No, you're not going to do that. And when people come and they irritate you or they make noise, you usually bark at them, right? That's what I, hey, well, get out of here. I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling well. Jesus is beaten beyond recognition. You can't even recognize he's human. And he's nailed to a cross. His head is pounding. His body is screaming. And a criminal next to him starts trashing his identity. Now, how many of you know this is just unbelievable? But this is how the devil works. Look at one of the criminals hanging right next to him. So you're the Messiah, are you? I mean, this, this, is, this is demonically fueled attack because in your, nobody in their right mind is going to slander somebody, especially the sinless lamb of God next to them, unless you're demonized. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Slander, mock, slander, mock. Make fun, attack the identity of Jesus. Look what else happens here. Matthew 27, the people passing by. You would think if you saw a man in that condition, 
and you looked upon him as just as a human being, you would have some tiny ounce of compassion. But while Jesus is hanging there in agony, look at what the passers-by are doing. They shout abuse at him, and they shake their heads in mockery, like you, disgusting, vile person, mocking, oh, disgusting, shaking their head, yelling stuff at Christ while he's hanging on the cross. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, look at that word if. Man, go through all the passages of Christ on the cross and just circle the word if because every time you see the word if, it is a demonic attack on the identity of Jesus. If you're the son of God. How many of you know when you're hanging there like this in agony, you're probably not feeling too much like God? or like a victor, or like a champion. And so the devil just goes after your weak spot. And that's exactly what he's doing to Christ. If you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The irony is, if Jesus would have saved himself and come down from the cross, he wouldn't have been the Messiah because he would, we would have all lost. So how many of you know, sometimes strength is demonstrated in submission and endurance and silence. The sheep before shears, silent. Um, that's what Jesus is doing. Now I'm going to ask you another silly question. Shame attacks Jesus' identity as king. Do you know anything about that identity? Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, the one the Bible says every knee is going to bow before him, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How many know that is authority? That is authority that is crazy authority. Jesus was the king who spoke the world into existence by the sheer power of his words. The Bible says everybody above earth, on the earth, below earth, anywhere in the cosmos will all have one response to Jesus, and that is worship and submission. This is a king like none other. But I want you to know the devil goes after his kingship. Look at what he says. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium, and they called out an entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe. They wove thorn branches into a crown. They put it on his head. Then they saluted him, and here it is again, and taunted him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with every pounding blow to his head, driving that crown of thorns into his scalp. Uh, and again, the pain of that, the blood from that would have been profuse. And notice again, here they are, nothing more of a greater indignity than being spit upon. Here, this legion of soldiers gathers around Jesus and literally covers him in spit. They drop to their knees in mock worship. So now they're standing before this bloody man with a purple robe on and a crown made of thorns covered in spit, and they're kneeling before him, making fun of him as they worship him as king. Of course, it's all mockery. In fact, look at this. Look at verse 20. When they were finally tired of mocking him. In other words, they mocked him so long, they got bored with it and finally wanted to go on to something else. When they were tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe, and they put his own clothes on again. Now that we just mentioned, they took off the purple robe, the purple robe that has been stuck to his back with the blood and with the flesh, which has become affixed to his back, and they take it off, ripping him wide open all over again. These are just some of the physical agonies that we sometimes gloss over. And then it says they led him away to be crucified. And, of course, the, the priests are joining as well, Matthew 27. 
the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel. Look at this mock again. Is he? It's a question. He is the king of Israel. Is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe him. Do you hear it over and over again? It, it is a direct assault on his identity. You're not a prophet. You're not a priest. You're not a king. You're not the Messiah. You don't have what it takes. You're a failure. You're a loser. You're a beat up, bloodied, spit upon, uh, criminal, full of shame, naked, nailed to a cross like a vile criminal. That's who you are. This is what's going off in the head of Jesus while he is enduring all of this for you and for me. But how many of you know all that stuff is bad, but the devil always saves his, his, his cheapest shot for the end. Remember in this series, we started off by saying that Jesus modeled for us how to live free from shame. Remember that story? Remember when Jesus was baptized and God was so excited and proud of his son that he could not contain himself. And he yelled out from the grandstand, so to speak. Remember that? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He did it again at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. He said, listen to him. And those words came, remember? Those words came the first time right before Jesus was going into the wilderness to be tempted. Why did God do that? Because he wanted to undergird his son with the one thing that would carry him through the hardest stuff of life. And that's knowing he was loved and valuable and that his father was proud of him and that his father believed you have what it takes to do the assignment and to complete the mission. God's saying, I believe in you. What attack does Satan save for the very end? He attacks Jesus' unique identity as a beloved son of the Father. And look what he says. This is a low blow right here. Matthew 27, verse 43. He trusted God, so let God rescue him. Listen to this dig. Can you hear the hiss of hell? Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Oh, my goodness. When you're in that condition and you have been assaulted and assaulted and assaulted and assaulted and the last thing out of the devil's mouth is let God help him if he wants. Because here's the, here's the underlying tone. Because it sure doesn't look like it. Why would God allow his son to be treated like this? Obviously, God doesn't care anything about you, Jesus. You're a loser, and you don't have what it takes because even God is turning his back on you. You're not enough. You're not valuable. You're a failure. You're no Messiah. That's what Jesus hears. But this is pretty cool. Matthew chapter two, or Psalm chapter 22, remember how that starts off? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I used to read that, and I used to think Jesus was crying out, that God is somehow turning his back on him and that God is forsaking him. Now, how many of you know God doesn't forsake his beloved son? Period. But this is an interesting take by theologians on this. When a teacher 
like Jesus, a rabbi, would be quizzing his disciples, he would start a psalm by quoting the first verse. And then your job as the disciple was to finish it. Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A casual reading would suggest that somehow Jesus was thinking God's done with him, turned his back on him, quit, can't, you know, obviously can't look at him because of sin and all that. And there's an element of truth there. But when you start reading through Psalm 22, you read the most incredible, accurate description of the crucifixion, again, 600 years before it happened, and it starts off really bad. But how many of you know sometimes Psalms start off bad, but they always seem good? <laughs> David says, God, where are you? Are you listening to me? And then before the psalm's over, he says, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in the Lord. David always ends up coming to the truth no matter how he feels. Now, you want to know how Psalm 22 ends? It ends by Jesus declaring that he's going to be king over all the world. It ends by saying that generations to come will be remembering what he did for us on the cross. And you know what? It's true, because what are we doing here tonight? We're remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross, which means Psalm 22 is prophetic and is written by the Holy Spirit, not by men, and it perfectly captured what was the heart of Jesus. But Jesus wasn't making a declaration that the Father was leaving him. Jesus was starting verse 1. And his expectation was that for those who have ears to hear, finish the psalm. Finish the psalm. Finish the psalm. Some of you have been through rough times. Learn from Jesus. Because God's, God's heart for you is that you are a beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. The lie of shame is when you're going through pain that somehow God doesn't care. But listen to me, the cross forever settles how much God cares. You say, God, I'm hurting right now. Don't you care? That's why we have Good Friday, because God knows what it's like to hurt. And God knows what it's like to take on shame. And God knows what it's like to hang naked before a bunch of mockers. And God knows what it's like to be spit upon, covered in spit. God knows what it's like to experience agony. In fact, that word agony deals with the wine press and the garden. He knows what it's like to have blood vessels pop under the weight of what he was carrying. You say, Lord, I'm going, I don't know if you can understand what I'm going through. The cross screams, not only does he understand, but he embraced everything we go through on himself out of love. Listen, not just to pay the price for your son and give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Are you ready for this? But to invite you into fellowship with himself. This, this is Sunday's message. To bring you into unbridled eternal joy. Yes. <laughs> and this is what we get to experience now. Every one of us, so if the Lord could come and he could touch us on the chin and lift up our heads to hang low and look into our eyes 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 and look into our eyes. And Eli, look into our eyes <laughs> with unbridled joy and affection, knowing this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. We don't drag our faces in shame. We don't live under the guilt and the sin. We've been liberated to, to live a life of joy. 
We have a Father who is a happy God. We have a Son who is a joyful Savior, anointed with the oil of gladness. And we have a Holy Spirit who releases to us the affection of God's heart for us so that we can experience it. Paul, Paul prayed, God, help me to understand the width, the depth, the height of your love for me so that I can experience your love for me. Because how many of you know it's the love of the Father that absolutely transforms us? Yes. And what should be, listen, what should be the most identifiable sign of what Jesus did for us on the cross, taking our shame, is that the church of Jesus is known for its joy. We're the happiest bunch on planet Earth. We're a happy happy tribe. And we're not drunk. We're drunk with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us love well. Love well. And our gatherings as believers are marked now, not by guilt and shame and mockery and all this demonic stuff, but our gatherings are marked by a tangible sense of the love of God and the joy that we have in relationship with each other. Ready for this? It's never, oh, I have to go to church because I got to check off the box and... Oh, gee. You think the cross was a big box check off? Are you kidding me? We've been liberated to love one another and to love the Father and to be the most liberated, joyful people on planet Earth. That's what we're working towards. Now, I want Pastor Dick to come up, and we're going to experience communion together, and we're going to close with an amazing song. Don't you love that song? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Now, before we do this, if you did not get some communion elements on the way in, just slip your hand up, and our our ushers will run that by you, all right? Because we want to make sure everybody... That's a believer. That is my, that's my one request that you've bowed your knee to Christ and you've invited him into your life. This is a family covenant meal that we're sharing here. But we're going to celebrate communion and then we're going to worship our way out here tonight. All right. So, Pastor Dick. Amen. Michael. Thank you. Hallelujah. Well, as we look at the cross with the blood on it, um, this is the purest definition of God's love, right? Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, right? Our father delivered up his one and only son for us all, that by doing that, he might freely give us everything we need. So as we remember, you know, Jesus, this, this Good Friday, this message of the cross is an eternal message. We'll hear the resurrection, and that's an eternal message, but no cross, no resurrection, right? So we're doing this in remembrance with with thankful hearts on what Jesus has done for us, you know? This is love. Whenever you don't feel like you're loved by God, remember the cross. God sent his only son to deliver us from us all, that, that through him he might freely give us everything that's good, for us, even in this life. Amen. Come on. That's, that makes my heart happy. Yes. <laughs> I might have my, my face down, as Pastor Ron said, for a moment in this life. But after I remember, wait a minute. If God gave me his best, everything's going to be okay. Yes. Amen. Come on. Amen. So as we uh, celebrate communion, we're going to honor the body broken, mutilated. Uh, every flesh-eating disease Jesus bore on his body on the cross, 
I believe you don't hear this too much, but even the crown of thorns, I believe that was something to say to those who are tormented in their minds with fear and anxiety and are demonized. The, the crown of thorns, nothing's wasted in God. That's right, amen. That's to bring us mental health and peace and, and sound minds. And maybe you need to receive that tonight. Maybe you need to receive it for someone else tonight. So as you open up your container here, we, we're going to first honor the blood. Excuse me, we're going to honor the bread. Amen. I love the blood, but I love the body too. Amen. So Father, we just do. We are remembering tonight from our heart how much you love us. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forgive not, forget not all his benefits, who forgives us of all our sins, but also heals us of all our diseases. So Lord, we receive tonight your body that was broken to make us whole. We receive the divine impartation of health and strength from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Father, we partake with thankful hearts, with joyous hearts, with sober hearts, and we thank you for giving us your body that we might have your health and your strength in this life. In Jesus' name, let's partake together. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. As we honor the body that was broken and the healing power, we honor the blood of God that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. There's only one substance in the whole universe that has the power to eradicate sin. It's the blood of God. It's the blood of Jesus. And brethren, aren't you glad his blood has not lost its power? Amen. As you just come to him humbly, thanking Jesus for what he's done for you, let's take the blood. Amen. Father, we honor you for your blood that was shed. It wasn't a surgical operation. It wasn't getting a blood test. You were brutally bludgeoned and, and bloodied. But Lord, you did it for me, for my sins. You did it for us here at Living Stones. And Lord, we just right now receive the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Lord, wash us. Save us to the uttermost. Don't go, go deep. You did it. You did everything. You saved us on that cross to the uttermost. Father, let your blood saturate. Let your blood penetrate. Uh, the deepest and the darkest sin, your blood is able to purge and cleanse. So Lord, we receive that bloodbath that forgiveness of your blood. We honor, we're not gonna trample on it. We fear to not remember what you've done and what it cost you. So right now, let's just partake of that blood Man. by faith. We can't earn it, we can't work for it. It's, it's believing in Jesus that he did it for us, for his glory. Let's partake. 